Well, good morning. For those of you um, who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Keenan, and I am uh, a campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at UCSB. It's a ministry of our denomination to the university, and so I have the privilege of serving college students at UCSB, and I got the, uh, the phone call on Friday um, from Kyle uh, to preach this morning. He was unwell, and he, he literally did pass out. And we're very thankful that uh, what occurred afterwards didn't actually um, hinder him from being here this morning. So it's always a privilege for me to stand before a church like Christ Pres, especially a church that supports the work that we do. And I love to take the opportunity to say thank you. Um, thank you for how you support me and my family and the work that we do at UCSB. Um, we cannot do the things that we do on campus without... Um, churches like Christ Pres, And so I am very blessed to call this my church home and very blessed to be a part of this, this church. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me uh, to Psalm 51, the passage that was read. If you're unfamiliar where to find it, the, Psalm, the book of Psalms is typically right in the middle of, of, of most Bibles and um, we'll be in Psalm 51. When I was in college, I... Um, I lived with two other guys. Um, one was, was Kyle's good friend from high school, and, and we lived at 530 North 14th Street in Oxford, Mississippi. And every Thursday, we would have supper club. There'd be a group of us that would come together, and we would always have dinner. Guys would cook, and the, the girls would always bring dessert. And the one night, um, the, the way our, our house was laid out, our, our dining room table sat in between our living room and our kitchen, and our kitchen had one of those old swinging doors, you know? I, I don't know if you know what those were like, but I grew up with kind of a swinging door. And we're in our dining room, we're, we're having our feast, and someone walked into the kitchen and opened the door. And at the time, I had a black lab named Hank. And Hank was sitting under the, the dining room table, because that's typically where he would find food. And all of a sudden, he bolted into the kitchen. And as he bolted into the kitchen, the door kind of swung open, and then it was coming back. And I looked up, and I saw it. A tail about this long. And all of a sudden, us guys, we, we kind of jumped up. We ran in the kitchen with Hank. And I mean, Hank is just going crazy. He's trying to find what we ended up calling this mouse, Stuart Ginormous. And he couldn't find it. We couldn't find it. So, I mean, we're moving appliances. We're going underneath the kitchen counter. You know, that, the counter that we don't really like. You know, you open up under the sink and there's all that stuff in there that we, we don't really want to move because we're afraid of something might come out. I mean, we're looking in those places. We're looking everywhere. And even in our kitchen back then, our, our, our washing machine, our dryer were in the same room as well. I mean, we're moving everything. And we can't find Stuart Ginormous. Um, so we kind of go back to dinner. But it was funny. After that, our, our relationship to the kitchen kind of changed. You know, you'd walk in and you just kind of didn't know if, you were going to open up a cabinet and there he was going to be. Or you open up the fridge and he's enjoying some cheese. I, you know, 
you just kind of felt the heebie-jeebies every time you walked into the kitchen. A couple days go by, um, about five days to be precise, and it's in the summertime in Mississippi, it's really hot outside, and all of a sudden there, there becomes this odor, this stench. And so we kind of did what most people would do. We did kind of a Rambo clean, you know. We went through the kitchen. We knew it was somewhere in the kitchen. And we just, we cleaned out cabinets. We cleaned out the fridge. We did, we just, we did everything you could. And the stench just, it didn't go away. The next day, it got so bad. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where if you smell something so bad, the potency, the, like the closer you get to it, the stronger it is. So we actually kind of used our noses to figure out where the stench was coming from. It was coming from behind the fridge. So we pulled the fridge back, and at first we didn't, we didn't see anything, and then I saw it. A tail hanging over kind of this little compartment of the fridge. And we realized what happened was like Stuart ginormous in a frantic, running away from my dog named Hank, had climbed up in the back of the fridge and got stuck. And he got stuck right next to the fan. And he died. (laughs) And so for five days, the fan is just pumping out this stench. And of course, I, now, you know, our relationship to the, to the fridge changed dramatically, you know. <laughs> Even, I mean, thinking back now, I, I, I kind of still get a bit queasy thinking about that. Um, there are times in our lives um, where something ugly and gross comes out from behind the walls of our hearts and it terrifies us. So much so that we see ourselves differently, like the relationship to how we view ourselves is different because there are times in our lives where something really gross and really ugly, it it comes out from behind the walls of our hearts. That's the context of Psalm 51. In Hebrew, actually, verse 1 is that little superscript above where you get the context. The choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is written when David, King David, the most powerful man in all of Israel, was supposed to be at war with his men, but he decided to stay home. And when he stayed home, he he saw a woman, Bathsheba, bathing on a rooftop, and he summoned her to his palace. And he got her pregnant. And then to cover it up, he had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was one of his more loyal servants, one of his, you know, trusted, you know, generals, or he he was kind of a special forces type men. He had Uriah killed 
And you can read about this in um, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And here's what's fascinating about this. King David impregnates someone who's not his wife, has her husband murdered, and for at least nine months, he doesn't deal with it. The stench of something gross that came out from behind the walls of his heart, it began to fester. Until in God's unbelievable mercy sent Nathan the prophet to confront David. That's the context of Psalm 51. And the, and the theme of, of this morning is when you've been devastated by your sin, God can still devastate you by his mercy. So before we consider uh, this psalm I'm incredibly thankful for, let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father in heaven, um, you know, uh, you know the way in which our hearts oftentimes operate. Especially when we upon our lips, praise you and thank you, and then we can turn around and curse our neighbor. And, and you know us to the bottom, and yet you still love us. But Lord Jesus, we, um, as we consider this psalm, um, we do pray that you would show us ourselves you would devastate us in a way that would actually begin to lead towards restoration. So, so show us ourselves, but more importantly, would you show us who you are? So, Lord, it's my prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts this morning, they would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray this in your name. Amen. This uh, psalm is one of my favorites, um, and I would imagine for many people it's one of their favorites, because it does two things. On the one hand, it, it really does show us the devastation of what our hearts are naturally like. Even hearts that, that have been changed by the grace of God, it shows us what a human heart looks like, and at the same time, it shows us what the heart of God is like. This is why I love this psalm so much. Because you get brutal honesty on both sides. Brutal truth on both sides. I don't know if you ever saw the, the TV show, um, The Wire. It came out many, many years ago. Uh, it's a story kind of just chronicling all the brokenness and corruption in the city of Baltimore. And in season one, you're introduced to a man named Waylon, who is, um, he's an addict or a recovering addict. And there's a scene Actually, Waylon's played by a musician named Steve Earle, who's kind of one of my favorite musicians. And the, the, there's a scene in episode one where Waylon is at an AA meeting. And this is what Waylon says. <clears throat> I'm Waylon, and I'm an addict. I want to be clean today more than I want to be high. I've been clean 24 hours now, and I'm still certain my disease wants me dead. 
I'm in here talking about how strong I feel, but my disease is out there in the parking lots doing push-ups on steroids, waiting to kick me up and down the street. I've got scars on my hands, my feet, two bouts of endocarditis, hep C, and whatnot, kicking down walls and busting out windows in my liver. I lost a good wife, a bad girlfriend, and respect of anyone who tried to loan me money or do me a favor. Pawned my pickup, my national steel guitar, a stamp collection my granddaddy left me. I thought I was God's own drug addict. I figured that if God hadn't meant for me to get high, he wouldn't have made being high so much like perfect. Now I know I've got one more high left in me. But I doubt very seriously that I have one more recovery. So if there's anybody out there that sees that bottom coming up at them, I'm here to talk sense. I don't care who you are, what you've done, or who you've done it to. If you're here, so am I. That is an unbelievable description, I think, of, of what David is doing in Psalm 51. In, in, in some sense, David is standing before a bunch of addicts, right? And he's saying, my disease, my sin, it's out there in the parking lot. It's, on, it's doing push-ups. It's on steroids. It's waiting to destroy me. And David bears the scars of his adultery and betrayal and murder. And perhaps you're here this morning and you bear similar scars. For you've been devastated by your own sin. But this is what's so amazing about Psalm 51 because David is also standing up there and he's saying, in a sense, I don't care who you are what you have done, or who you have done it to. God is merciful. According to his steadfast love. Shows us the devastation of our sin and the devastation of God's mercy wrapped in an unbelievable psalm. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at two things as we kind of unpack. There's so much in this psalm, but I really just want to focus on two things. I want to look at David's confession and then David's cleansing. And then maybe look at some so what. What do we do with it? First, David's confession. Verses 1 through 5, after David's been confronted by Nathan the prophet, he begins to confess. And it's, it's actually quite remarkable because David confesses what he's done, but then he also confesses who he's done it to. And this is really fascinating. But the first thing he does is he begins to own the ugliness that came out from behind the walls of his heart. And in this psalm, he uses all sorts of different Hebrew words to get at what he had done. There's many different words that that you can use to talk about your failure and sin, and David just kind of goes through the gamut in Hebrew. Notice what he says. He, he talks about his transgression. The fact that he, he trespassed God's law. Like he went where he knew he shouldn't have gone. Talks about his iniquity. That's a word we 
typically don't use very often anymore. But this word gets at the perverseness of what David did. It gets at the twisted, depraved thing. It gets at the heinousness of what David did. He talks about his own sin, that it was pure evil. That what came out of his heart was evil. David is coming before a holy, holy, holy God. And he is confidently confessing what he has done. This is remarkable. Because for many of us, we don't like to name specifics. I sometimes, when I'm by myself, I I typically try and get up early. I've got two little boys who like to get up early, but I try and get up before them so I can have that hour of just me time. But sometimes I'm in there, and I know no one's awake, but I'm still kind of nervous to confess my sin in case someone might hear it. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Or if you're talking at Starbucks with someone and you're kind of owning up to something and you're kind of, well, you know, just kind of, because you don't want anybody here. And what David is doing for us is he's modeling for us how to confess our sins to God. He's actually saying, you can call what you did evil, perverse, wicked. You can own the stuff that comes up out from behind the walls of your heart confidently. Because he knows something about God and God's nature. He's honest, and he's modeling that for us this morning. But notice what else he does. He confesses that he sinned, but he also confesses something that is true of every single person since Genesis 3. He confesses that he is a sinner. Notice what he says in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not talking about that the act of conception was sinful. What he's talking about is the fact that when he was born, he was born sinful. In other words, the reason why we have gross, terrifying, ugly things that come up from out of our hearts is because we're sinners, We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. This is how we show up in the world. I'm on a a text messaging thread with some some other campus ministers, and uh, it's mainly a thread about Ole Miss football, and we have one Clemson fan who's very annoying right now. but this Clemson fan actually texted out something the other day, and it was a story about another college program that's kind of been under investigation, and and a story came out this last week that the coach, um, in order to protect his reputation, in order to protect the program and its success and and everything, he he would lie about the conduct of his players, or he would try and, and dismiss it or cover it up. So he was covering up drug scandals. He was covering up sexual assault scandals. 
how he's covering up all sorts of things, and it just came to light. And we're texting back and forth in this thread, and we're just talking about how tragic and how sad it is. And then one of, one of my friends on this thread said something, and it just, it hit me. He said, it is so sad, but so much of this is true about me. Who's the greatest sinner that you know? It's a question I was asked one time when I was a student. Of course, my mind started going to like all sorts of people. And then I realized it's supposed to be me. David comes and he says, not only have I sinned, but I'm a sinner. That's how I show up. That's how we show up. We show up not good, and then break into being bad. Now, we show up sinful, rebelling against our God. But then notice what he also confesses. He confesses who he sinned against. He says, to you and you only, God, have I sinned. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't sin against Uriah or Uriah's family or Bathsheba. But what it does mean is that Every, everything that we do in our rebellion, it's aimed at God. That is its primary target. When those gross, ugly things come out from behind the walls of our heart, those things are aimed at God. Now, we leave collateral damage all over the place, and there is consequences for bad decisions in our sin. But David is teaching us that it's only to God and God alone that we have sinned. So what do we learn from this? There's many things, but a couple of things to consider. I think David is teaching us that we can't let things fester. Nine months went by, or at least nine months went by, before God in his mercy sent Nathan the prophet. Here's the thing. The stench, it will get bad enough to where you have to deal with it or somebody else will. And David is coming saying, you don't have to let it fester. Why? Because you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid to come before this holy, holy God and confess and own up to whatever it is that has terrified you or has terrified others. This is David's confession. But what about his cleansing? I can remember, probably like most people, right before I got married uh, to my wife Morgan, you know, you're wanting to look your best on your wedding day. At least I think most people want to look their best. And so we decided that it might be a good idea to do Dr. Oz's three-day detox I don't know who gave us that idea. It was a terrible idea. <laughs> don't know if you, I mean, I am in California, so this may be a staple that everyone does weekly, detoxing. But when you're in the South and you're used to fried chicken, fried pickles, all sorts of sweets, that's kind of like, detoxing is not a good idea. You know, the idea of detox is that you, at least Dr. Oz's detox was you drink three shakes or four shakes a day for three days, 
and the concoction is supposed to like, literally like go through and detox all of the nasty, gross stuff that, you know, was in your intestines and all that kind of stuff. It was the worst three days of my life. And it was gross, and it was painful, and it was terrible. And I've never detoxed again. But what is so unbelievable about Psalm 51 is that, is that David is coming to God, and he's asking God to detox his soul. Like, he's coming, and he's saying, God, there, there's something that you have got to do in me. So what is it about this cleansing? What, what do we learn about the cleansing? Well, the first thing you need to understand is that David recognizes that he can't, he can't detox himself. Notice how the psalm begins. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David comes and he essentially is saying, I know that I can't detox my own soul. There's nothing in my hands that I bring. Absolutely nothing. The only, actually, the only thing that we contribute in the detox plan of God is our sin. And he says, do this according to your mercy. Now, what does David mean when he uses the word mercy. What does it mean to cry out for mercy? I think um, August Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages, really does a, a fantastic job of kind of getting at the idea of mercy. In stanza three, it says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look on thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. <laughs> Wash me, Savior, or I die. One of my favorite lines of any hymn that there is. Because we come with nothing in our hands. It's all according to the mercy of God. David comes with open hands, admitting that he can't detox himself. That's the first thing we see about the cleansing. You can't do it. But the second thing we see is, verse 7, David says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. <laughs> what on earth does that mean? Did any of you bring your hyssop this morning? Purge me with hyssop. What is, what is David saying? Well, first, purge. Most commentators agree that this word, is, it's a derivative of the word sin, and it literally means to descend me. Now, I want you to let that wash over you for a second because David is coming to God, and he's literally asking him, can you, will you de-sin me? Will you de-adultery me? Will you de-murder me? Will you de-betray me?
You see how incredibly bold that request is? Like, you can't undo what David did. Like, Bathsheba's pregnant. Uriah's dead. And yet David comes to God and he says, reverse it, undo it, descend me. Purge me with hyssop. What is hyssop? That was a plant that the high priest would mix with water and blood and he would apply it to two types of people. A leper who was ceremonially unclean and kicked outside the the covenant community of, of Israel and to anyone who touched a dead body. A high priest would take hyssop and water and he'd mix it together and he would apply it to cleanse these two types of people. So when David is asking God to purge him with hyssop, <coughs> he's asking him not only to undo what he's done, but he's actually asking him to make him clean as if he had never done it. Undo what I've done, but also make me so clean as to if I've never done it. And the beauty of Psalm 51 and where we are privileged to sit this morning is that we get to read that through the lens of the New Testament. Where Jesus Christ, who is known as our great high priest, he comes with the ultimate hyssop. He comes with his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's only in Jesus where we begin to realize that David's request, it's not all that audacious. Because Jesus can descend you. And he can make you clean as if you had never done it by virtue of what he accomplished on the cross. So are you here this morning and perhaps you're obsessed with money and materialism, and wealth, and you've noticed that your fascination and your obsession with, with money, it's, it's caused you to do things that you never thought you would do? Like maybe lie on your income tax, or embezzle things from your company, or just steal Like your greed has gotten to the point where it's starting to devastate not just your life, but the lives around you. Jesus can take his hyssop and he can degreed you. Are you an angry person? Short with your spouse or your kids? And you've actually been terrified of what happens when you do lose your temper? Jesus can come with his hyssop and he can de-anger you. Or you're an addict this morning. And perhaps your addiction is to pornography. Or some sort of sexual sin. Or some sort of substance. Jesus can take his hyssop and he can de-porn you. Why does God do this? As much as our sin devastates us, God's steadfast love is always greater than our sin. He comes to devastate us with his mercy. 
Because that is how God is committed to his people, even a people who are unfaithful and uncommitted to him and would do things like adultery or murder or betrayal. Even when people wreck their lives with just poor decisions, Jesus is ready to descend you. So what do we do with this? What's our response? Well, look with me at verses 16 and 17. David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. What is David saying? In many ways, our New Testament passage this morning gives us the answer. In Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. They both go up to the temple, and the Pharisee is praying to God, but the way in which he prays is he's just kind of giving his, his resume. He's, he's thanking God that he's better than everyone else. He's thanking God that, you know, he's zealous for good works. He tithes more than anyone. He actually, you know, he fasts more than anyone the Pharisee, a, a devout religious person, when he went up to the temple, he thanked God for how awesome he was. And then you have the tax collector who stands far off, can't look up to heaven, and he just beats his chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it is that man, the sinner, not the religious, not the one who is great <laughs> or who thinks he's great. It is that man who goes home justified and who is at peace with God. And here's the thing. Our tendency is to think on the one hand that if I do my part, God will do his. Like there, There's this him that we often sing, come ye sinners, and there's a line that says, if you tarry until you're better, if you delay, if you wait until you're better to come to Jesus, you'll never come to him at all. And our tendency is oftentimes to think, and I'm stealing this from Joe Novison, he's a, a pastor in our de denomination, who said our tendency oftentimes is to think that if I can do the most right, the least amount of wrong, for the longest period of time, God will then accept me, or he'll be pleased with me. And that's an attitude of a Pharisee. That if I can do the most right, the least amount of wrong for the longest period of time, somehow that's going to merit God's mercy. And Jesus and David are saying that those are the sacrifices that God does not delight in. David and Jesus are showing us that God delights in a broken and contrite heart. We have to see ourselves the way David and the tax collector did. The sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart means that you're devastated by your sin and at the same time, you're being devastated by God's mercy. But for many of us, we are hardwired to want to pay it down ourselves, to work for the mercy and grace of God. And David is teaching us this morning that the only thing we contribute in the exchange of God's mercy is our sin. 
And Jesus delights to devastate us with his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love. There is no other way to approach Jesus than to beat your chest and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus delights to extend mercy to those who will humble themselves and recognize that they can't contribute. They can't cleanse themselves. Only he can do it. So my question for us this morning is this. Will you come to Jesus devastated by your sin but overwhelmed by his mercy, and in many ways devastated by the fact that he still loves you. Consider that an invitation this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that our sin is gross it's ugly, it's heinous, it's perverse, it's wicked. You know the thoughts and intentions of all of our hearts. You know the ways in which we've showed up here this morning, ways in which we have decided to hide in our sin and misery, to cover it up, to let it fester. And we thank you that in this psalm you did send Nathan the prophet because you're merciful and you want people to come out from their hiding because you want to restore us. You delight in showing mercy. So I pray this morning um, for all of us that we would come to you, Lord Jesus, with nothing in our hands and that we would be able to, um, in humility and in brokenness, receive your mercy. And so it's our prayer this morning that you indeed would renew a right spirit within us, cleanse us, make us pure. For we know that only you can do that. So would you do it? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.